Our scripture reading this evening is Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his, by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would be faithful to be at work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we might learn good things from your word and be shaped and formed by them. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This evening, our catechism lesson is from the Heidelberg Catechism. We are pausing briefly from our study of the Belgic Confession to consider Question and answer 96. A bit of an explanation. This will be helpful to know if you're visiting with us as well. Our Christmas service is tomorrow morning, so all the Christmas songs will be sung then. But this does raise a question that is often raised in Reformed churches of whether or not it is appropriate for us to be gathering together as a church to celebrate Christmas. I want to consider some of those objections this evening in a way that I hope, I pray, points us to some uh, spiritual fruitfulness that can be had from considering that question. And I want us to do so in the light of question and answer 96 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll read these words responsively. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, of course, Christmas Eve. In a moment, we're going to be singing a couple of Christmas hymns together. We're going to be singing just about every one in the book tomorrow morning. And I want to be asking together as a church the question of why we do this. Is it appropriate? Is it right that we celebrate Christmas? Whether you ask, whether you mean as a church or even as families. I want to structure this this evening around three possible objections. And so the three main headings of your outline are based on these three objections. 
I want to explain for a moment why we are doing this. First, some of us have explored, I know I have in the past, some of these objections as being substantive, meaningful ways of doubting whether or not we should be celebrating Christmas, especially the first one, in such a way that some of you may even be interested in this question in an open way at this time. I hope to address that at least in a very small, partial way. Second, others of us may not actively make any of these objections, but I do think there is often a spirituality, a way of thinking about the Christian life that lives within our hearts and minds such that at certain moments of celebrating a feast day with, like Christmas, we are not entirely convinced it is entirely a spiritual thing to do. And we may not acknowledge that, but that that moment of reckless abandon of ripping open boxes of Legos, I'm not sure we're always confident that this is good and right. And I want to help us work through that a little bit this evening. A third benefit to this. Others of us have never even considered the possibility of an objection to Christmas. The exercise can still be valuable. Every one of the objections has an element of truth in it. And there is wisdom to be found in both acknowledging the objection, rejecting it, as I hope to persuade us, but then being in a place of spiritual balance, spiritual fruitfulness, because of having taken the objection seriously. I don't think we should scoff at the possibility of objections. We ought to own up to them. And as I said, I think there is wisdom to be had in taking them seriously. So, you have before us three possible objections. Let's begin with number one. The first one involves the question of a church calendar. The objection is this. Worship must be according to Scripture, but the Scriptures nowhere command the observance of days like Easter or Christmas. This is why we just read together question and answer 96 of the Catechism. This is on the second commandment, God's commandment that we should not use images as a way of worshiping Him. And one of the principles that the Reformed tradition in particular has derived from that is that the way we worship God matters. Intention is not good enough. Being well-meaning is not good enough in worship. But that the way we worship God ought to be informed by Scripture. Well, if we take that in a very direct and simplistic way, then we might point out that nowhere does Scripture command the celebration of, on an annual calendar of something like Easter or Christmas. Therefore, some have concluded within the Reformed tradition, we should not do so. Too often in Reformed churches, this question is ignored. No one cares. We say we make much of the fact that we worship according to Scripture, and then we do many things without considering whether or not they actually are in accordance with Scripture. And I'm concerned that too many of us find it too easy to simply write off, ignore this objection. I think it ought to be taken seriously. A couple of things to note about question answer 96 of the Catechism. First, for those who reject the idea of an annual calendar, one of the things they conclude from it is that our focus always ought to be the Lord's Day. We can affirm this. We ought to affirm this. The weekly pattern of meeting for worship on the first day of the week is what ought to have the focus. Though this is Christmas Eve day, if that's a thing, I think it is, it's first of all the Lord's Day. 
we are first of all gathered here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And that does not change however much the Lord's Day celebration might be themed around other theological themes or events. The Lord's Day has primary place. The next thing I want to point out about question and answer 96 of the Catechism is the specific language of it. Some have taken the principle that worship must be according to Scripture and said, therefore, you must be able to find a specific command for every specific thing done in worship. But that is not what Lord's Day, or question answer 96 says. Listen to the answer again. That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship Him in any other way than has been commanded in God's Word. I want to emphasize that phrase, any other way. This does not have in view a very simplistic proof texting, find me a verse that commands Christmas. Rather, it has in view, it, it, does include, it includes specific commands, like celebrating the Lord's Supper, for example, but it has in view also broader scriptural themes, the way the scriptures give us patterns of how we are to worship God, patterns for how God's people ought to live in the world. And the argument is that those broader scriptural themes, well, those say something about how we view the calendar. Letter B, the response. The scriptures teach us the wisdom of marking time by way of commemorating God's great acts of redemption. This is a pattern we see clearly in scripture, rooted deeply in the Old Testament, that God gives his people weekly, monthly, yearly calendars, and those calendar events are tied to the events of redemption of what God has done for his people. Now, to be sure, those things are fulfilled in Christ, and the fact that they are fulfilled in Christ changes what that looks like for us. Consider Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. This is why we read from Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Apostle Paul here says that all of those Old Testament laws no longer apply to us in a direct way. They have been fulfilled in Christ. But notice the way he says this. He does not say they are other than Christ, that they had nothing to do with him, and that therefore we, we do away with them. He says rather, first, they are a shadow of the things to come. Now, interestingly, for it to be a shadow, the one casting the shadow must also have been present. And who is the one who gave shape to the shadow being cast? But, Paul says, the substance belongs to Christ. That Christ is the one who gave shape to those things. And so God was teaching his people that time itself has the shape of the Son, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that time ought to be marked as having that shape. Interestingly, those who most directly object to the celebration of Christmas on the basis of focusing on the Lord's Day still need to explain why we celebrate the Lord's Day versus the Sabbath. Because what did Colossians 2 verses 16 through 7 and 17 say? with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Well, the argument for why we celebrate the Lord's Day is that it is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The Sabbath taught God's people to mark time on a weekly basis as having the shape of redemption. The resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week fulfills that, and so we rightly gather for worship on the first day of the week. That mode of argument applies just as easily to a yearly calendar. 
God taught Israel to mark time as having the shape of redemption and the shape of the sun. We do so by marking the annual calendar according to the key events in the work of Christ in salvation. Now, as I do this, I don't want to simply be defensive though. So notice how each one of these has an objection and then a response, but then I want to go further. I want to say not just here's how we defend it, here is why it is good. Here it is why it is fruitful, valuable to do this. In fact, many of the reformers at the time of the Reformation objecting to the extent of the calendar that God's people were um, burdened with at the time of the Reformation made their argument not on the basis of Scripture doesn't command it, but made their argument on the basis of it was burdensome. There was too much. It was emphasizing fasting instead of feasting. Many of the arguments were about pastoral, spiritual, fruitfulness, and value. Well, that leaves us free to identify that value. So why is this good to mark time in this way? Let us see. It is good to mark time counterculturally as having the shape of the sun and moving toward the new creation. Calendars have a powerful way of defining identity. Calendars have a powerful way of defining loyalties, belonging, of defining what is most important. Time is one of the most important parts of being human. And the way we mark that time says something about what is ultimately meaningful to us. Civil governments know this. Holidays are defined to capture, to maintain loyalties of the people. Family calendars do this. Well, one of the things we are doing in the wisdom of the history of the church by marking time in this way is marking the calendar as being a matter of loyalty to Christ and the church over against counterculturally all other calendars, whether it be a civil calendar or a commercial calendar, a selling things calendar, or whether it be a family calendar. It is the calendar by which we mark time as having the shape of the sun that defines who we are and defines our loyalties. It is countercultural, contrary to a perceived meaninglessness of time. Time that apart from the creator, having rejected the creator, could be experienced as simply meaningless cycles, is hereby affirmed as being sustained by God's faithfulness. The very presence of the repeated cycles is something that God faithfully maintains. Indeed, it is moving toward Christ's second advent. Just as on a weekly basis, we live Lord's Day to Lord's Day. So on an annual basis, we live between the advents, from advent to advent, reminding us that we are living toward Christ's second advent. In all of those ways, it is not simply permissible, but it is deeply good to do such a thing. The question of a church calendar. Second, the question of feasting. Here's another objection. Someone might say, it seems unspiritual to place so much emphasis upon feasting. And what I have in mind here is the very concrete experience that some would point out explicitly as a critique. Others of us, I think, are not fully at peace with in our hearts. But that at that moment of most festively celebrating and enjoying fellowship with other human beings, you are not actively thinking Bible thoughts, you're just enjoying this moment. Is that a spiritual thing? 
And it seems that a calendar like this inclines towards such festivity and celebration, celebrating these events. Well, how do we respond to that worry? Letter B, the response. Idolatry, by way of gluttony and drunkenness, for example, is a real danger. But the answer to the real danger is the right use of God's gifts, not their rejection. So, when one has this worry, we must acknowledge, is it possible to use God's good gifts in a way that is rebellious, that is idolatrous, that is other than serving and glorifying the Lord? Absolutely. And the scriptures warn clearly against that. But the scriptures also warn clearly, in a way that's often neglected, against the rejection of such things. That the rejection of them is not the answer. God created them good. The answer is the right use of them. Indeed, in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul warns against those who would commend asceticism. That is what he calls severity to the body. Who would commend the refusal of enjoyment as being more spiritual. And he says this, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice what Paul says so clearly. Rejecting the enjoyable thing is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What is the right way? It is the right faithful use. Now, that can be understood merely defensively, I want to set this before you as a positive good that the scriptures commend to us. Let us see why this is good. The scriptures emphasize feasting as something that characterizes the new covenant in Christ. Especially at the moment of Israel being in exile. But as a pattern more broadly than that, you can characterize the movement from Old Testament to New, Old Covenant to New, as being a movement, by way of emphasis, from fasting to feasting. And the prophet Zechariah speaks of it in this way, specifically to Israel in exile. Zechariah 8, verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is but one example. Repeatedly, the prophets point to the future, the time of the Messiah, as a time that will bring in festivity and celebration. This is why, famously, Jesus' first recorded miracle is turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. This was not just showing his power, it was showing what he came to do. He came to bring feasting. And this is why he tells his people when they gather to partake of the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, it is not a funeral service, it is the imagery of feasting and celebration. We could go on and on with scriptural examples. You are well aware of that. We spoke of many of them this morning in uh, Genesis 18. The point is simply this. There is a pattern of the coming of Christ bringing feasting. And so it is appropriate, it is Christian, for feasting in particular to mark how we, or, or to characterize how we mark those great acts of redemption that God has done. The feasting is itself a spiritual good that God commends to us. 
It's not something we have to explain. It's something we have to defend. Not something we have to put a spiritual bow on. It is itself a spiritual good. Number three, the third objection. The question of gift-giving. Letter A. By participating in gift-giving... It seems like we are participating in the consumerism and commercialism of our culture. As with the other two objections, so this one must be taken seriously. If the accusation is made that we are simply, in a way, no different than the world, participating in consumerism and commercialism, our response ought to be, maybe. Let's be careful. As with all of the good things of God's good creation, we must be attuned to our hearts to be oriented toward God's glory as the creator. The scriptures are very clear about the danger of the things of this life, especially in times of prosperity, turning our hearts away from devotion to service to the Lord. This is warned of in Old Testament and New. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, Matthew 6, verse 24 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The warning must be taken seriously. But here's the problem. As Proverbs and Ecclesiastes make clear, as the scriptures describe in so many different ways, as I've already said this evening, Rejecting the good thing is not the answer. God is the creator. He is not just our redeemer, he is the creator. And at the creation, he declared all that he made very good. So how ought we respond to this worry? Well, we respond first by acknowledging the real warning that must be taken seriously. And then we can say something like, letter B. The response, gift giving can be rightly understood as a God-glorifying enjoyment of the good things of His creation. And I should add to that, and it is a mode of enjoyment aimed at blessing others. So there, there is an enjoyment of the good thing, but it is an enjoyment that has the capacity, at least, to be truly other-oriented. Esther 9, verse 22. This is the establishment of the Feast of Purim, celebrating the deliverance of the Jews during the time of Esther. And the feast is described in this way. Esther 9, verse 22, As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, and this is the part I believe is quoted on your outline, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Interestingly, by the way, for those who want to double down on the debate in point one, the establishing of this holiday was never commanded by the Lord. And yet its presence in Scripture has a kind of commending it, though there is no record of it being commanded by God. It's simply something they started doing. And if you really want to get into that debate... There are those who argue, and I am persuaded of this, though certainly not all are, that early in John's gospel, when we are told that John or Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews, at that moment where it's not named which feast it is, based on the timeline of when it is happening, it seems to be this one. And one might argue that Jesus is thereby affirming the celebrating of a 
church calendar festival that God never commanded. That's not why we're quoting it here, though. Why are we quoting it here? Gift-giving as the mode of celebration. Gift-giving, by all means, generously include others. Notice the reference of giving gifts to the poor. Uh, Tomorrow morning in our Christmas service, if I recall correctly, I believe our ordinary practice is there is an offering for the Benevolence Fund, a means by which the deacons care for those who are in need. That is a very appropriate thing to be doing in particular as an expression of celebration and festivity, to be sure that others are included. But this too can sound overly defensive. And so as we conclude this evening, I want to commend this to you as a positive good. Letter C, why this is good. This is a theme that is specifically appropriate for the celebration of the incarnation. Christmas in particular, what are we celebrating? The incarnation. The union of the eternal Son of God, true, full divinity, with true, full humanity in one person. The closest union possible, one person, of God himself with our human nature in the things of this creation. That is an affirmation beyond our full comprehension in its positiveness. An affirmation of this creation and the goodness of this creation. And that the mode of God's rescuing us, of saving us, is not a mode of rescuing our souls out of this creation, but of rather rescuing the creation itself and us as part of it. Rescuing our humanness, our embodiedness in his good creation. And the incarnation in particular stands as a testimony to that reality. And so it makes sense that as those who are affirming and celebrating the Creator's affirmation of His good creation by entering into it with us as Emmanuel, it makes sense that one of the expressions of that would be the festive use of the things of His good creation. 1 Timothy 4 warns. Actually, we're just going to read this. 1 Timothy 4. I find Timothy very difficult to find for some reason. 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What is this teaching of demons? Verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then he gives this statement, quote on your outline. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to keep making this point, but I want to pause for a moment. Because this point is kind of fun, at least I think it's fun. We can be tempted to think, are we just saying what we want to hear, right? It's easy, it's fun, it's enjoyable to hear this. I'm not so sure it is. The temptation towards the rejection of the created good is too easy. And it is a real temptation. And it is not the way of wisdom. And we need God's word in its affirmation of the creation 
to warn us of that real danger. When our heart flirts with, maybe we should just like get away from all of this. That is itself the rejection of a good, and it is not wisdom. Wisdom is in the right use of God's good creation. And indeed, it is not just the incarnation that affirms this. The doctrine of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, affirms this. The resurrection of Christ, that he is raised bodily as an affirmation of the creation. The promise of new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, with the word used there emphasizing renewal, a making new of that which God created good. So let's go back into the chaos of ripping into boxes of Legos tomorrow morning because no one would open presents Christmas Eve. That is wrong. (laughs) Tomorrow morning, the chaos of ripping into boxes of Legos. Enjoying the good things of God's good creation. When you say Legos didn't grow on trees, I understand people made it, but see, he made us creative. He made us able to do these things. And when the Psalms celebrate the good things of the creation, it celebrates things like bread that involves human ingenuity to make it. The enjoyment of the thing itself is a created good. Finally, letter D. All three of these themes point to the joy of the new creation at Christ's second advent. The new creation is consistently described in earthy terms And the scriptures thereby teach us to receive the good gifts of this creation as pointers to God's promised future. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would enable us to feast and celebrate in a way that would be pleasing to you. Protect us from the idolatry, the destructive, wrong use of your good gifts. Free us by your Spirit for the right use of them, that we might enjoy the things of this life in a way that is truly pleasing to you and that directs us to the promises you have given us in Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.